Today is the final day in our summer sermon series where we are examining what we are about. The series started with a brief history of Park Road Baptist, followed by an overview more generally of Baptist history as only Russ can provide. We then talked about the difference between seeking the truth and having the truth and about honoring the diversity of thought that exists within our own congregation. Our series has touched upon music and worship and explored intergenerational community, including providing space and a voice for young people. We emphasize that while the church requires brick and mortar, it is so much more than just that. It is caring for one another and finding true community together as we seek to follow Christ more closely. And last week we discussed Park Road's ecumenical work and our desire to respect and cooperate with other faith traditions. Last, but certainly not least, we can't begin to talk about who we are as Baptists or who we are as a congregation without talking about missions. Park Road's roots were with the Southern Baptist Convention and that affiliation lasted from 1950 until 2007 when we withdrew all support for the convention due primarily to their increasingly conservative trajectory and their policies regarding the ordination of women. But when the SBC was formed in 1845, its purpose, stated purpose, was to promote foreign and domestic missions. It used to be said that if you cut a Southern Baptist, he or she will bleed evangelism and missions. My personal history includes having served with what was then the Home Mission Board as director of campus ministries in the Boston area and later with, with what was called at the time the Foreign Mission Board during our nine years in France. The new names, of course, are North American Mission Board and International Mission Board. At any rate, I was in Boston from 1982 to 86 when the SBC's Bold Mission Thrust Program was in full tilt. Bold Mission Thrust was adopted in 1976 and was the SBC's effort to share the gospel with every person on earth by the year 2000. Whatever you may think of this goal, it certainly reflects their commitment to missions and evangelism. As evidence of their dedication to this task, I can remember filling out monthly reports in Boston that included questions about the number of people with whom I had shared my faith and how many of those people were saved. Along with other New England campus ministers, our reports were often late, enough so that they threatened to withhold our salaries 
until our reports were received. I don't know if this had anything to do with those two questions. New England was considered a new work area for Baptists at that time, a pioneer area, if you will. And we were given our own program description under the banner of Bold Mission Thrust, Pioneer Penetration. I couldn't make this up, <laughs> and I don't want to know who did. <laughs> For several reasons, the time came when my wife and I began to think about leaving Boston. I felt my calling was to work with university students, and we were willing to go anywhere that there was a need. This led us to apply with the Foreign Mission Board a year-long process that involved writing personal histories, answering questions in writing, physical exams, psychiatric evaluations, and two sets of in-person interviews in Richmond. I recall one of the written questions asked me to recount the story of the last person that I had saved. Yes, that's exactly how it was phrased. I responded in the only way that I knew how, by saying that I had never saved anyone, that it wasn't my responsibility or my privilege to do that. Basically, that salvation was God's work. I almost didn't get past the psychiatric interview. The psychiatrist pointed out to me that in all of his years doing interviews of prospective missionaries, no one had ever taken issue with that question. That surprised me. I remember him asking me if I had always been a rebel. I'm glad you're laughing because if you know me, that's funny. The other interesting thing that happened during our interviews occurred in the very first meeting in Richmond with the area director for Europe and the Middle East, Isom Ballinger. By the way, he's the father of John Ballinger, Russ and Amy's good friend. He asked us, why France? You know that country is 90% Catholic. Well, I knew that only about 25% were practicing Catholics, and I replied that if our going there would result in some of the French people being better and more faithful Catholics, then we would feel we had accomplished our mission. He laughed and told me that I had just given that answer in the only office in the building where it was safe to respond that way. So why am I telling you these stories? To demonstrate to you that missions and evangelism are and always have been pivotal in Baptist life. And also to suggest that there are a variety of ways of thinking about and doing missions. Johann Onken, a German Baptist born in 1800, 
said every believer is a missionary. And he is, and his associates proceeded to take the gospel to Denmark, Switzerland, Austria, Holland, and Russia. I agree with Onken. We are all missionaries. We are all called to serve those in need and to share our faith with others, and maybe even to use, use words when necessary. Park Road, from the beginning, has made serving the needs of others a priority. When I applied for my position of, as Minister of Missions and Family Life 10 years ago, now Associate Pastor for Missions, thank you, before the interview with the personnel committee, I went to the website to see which ministries the church participated in. I knew a little bit about Park Road by reputation, and both Russ and Amy had, had some contact with our student group at UNCC. When I looked at the website and saw all the ministries that you were involved in, I thought, wow, this must be a huge congregation to provide volunteers for all of these ministries. At the time, if I recall correctly, there was work with QC Family Tree, Room in the Inn, of course. The Snackback program with Sedgefield Elementary had already started. People were providing meals and serving as overnight hosts for Charlotte Family Housing. Lunch at the men's shelter was already happening. And the relationship with our partner church in Cuba was going strong. We can't talk about Cuba, by the way, without mentioning the needlers and the hundreds of pillowcase dresses they have made and sent to Cuba and Haiti. The needlers also provided many of us with masks during the pandemic, and they've made felt blankets for the women and children at the Salvation Army Center of Hope. Our monthly mission offerings began that long ago as well. And every month, you are supporting charitable organizations through that offering, both here in Charlotte and beyond. By the way, I wasn't disappointed to find that we are not a huge congregation. Mostly, I was, and still am, impressed by this relatively small congregation's willingness to reach out and serve those in need. Even if you do sometimes sign up to help at the very last minute. <laughs> All the ministries I've mentioned, as well as tutoring and regular book distributions we've done for schools, collecting school supplies for Classroom Central, cleaning supplies for refugee support services, and packing meals for Stop Hunger Now, they all require a person to take the lead, as well as lots of volunteers. I was warned in seminary not to mention and thank individuals from the pulpit, because if you happen to overlook someone, well, you can imagine. So I won't mention names, but you know who you are, the leaders and the volunteers. And we know who you are, so thank you. 
Before the pandemic, we began to talk about the next big thing. I guess the first big things were building a Habitat house some years ago, before my time, and the emphasis on supporting our schools. We had decided that building a tiny house to donate to a group fighting human trafficking would be our next big thing. Unfortunately, the pandemic put that project on hold. On hold, but not abandoned. And there's more to come about that project. But at the time, sponsoring an asylum-seeking family was nowhere on our radar. When the opportunity came, an opportunity to help a family in crisis and in dire need to get a new start in our country, I knew that you would say yes. Yes, because missions is in the DNA of this church. Yes, because missions is about acting out of compassion for those in need without expecting or requiring anything in return. Who knew that sponsoring an asylum-seeking family would become our next big thing? Well, just between us, when I learned what was involved, I suspected that it might be. On very short notice, we found housing for them and then furniture for the house. And a day or two later, their family of five arrived at the airport with Marvin carrying one medium-sized duffel bag. Since then, we've provided clothes for them and household goods, school supplies and uniforms for the children, transportation to doctor and dentist and counseling appointments. We've bought groceries and taken lots of trips to the grocery store. We've provided day jobs for Marvin and childcare for the family in emergencies. And there have been fun addings to McCaddenville to see the Christmas lights, to a soccer game and two baseball games, to swimming pools and birthday parties. Oh, and let's not forget a marriage ceremony here in the sanctuary to fulfill their longtime dream. None of this could have happened without a congregation with a heart of compassion and a solid commitment to missions. Many of you have given hours of your time and other resources to assist the Perez family. A sincere thank you to everyone. I said earlier that a commitment to missions is motivated by compassion and involves serving others without expecting or requiring anything in return. But there is a return, isn't there? Any of you who have gotten to know the Perez family have experienced that yourselves. And there's a positive effect for the church as well because a commitment to missions, to service in meeting the needs of others, whether it is people experiencing housing insecurity or at-risk school children or an asylum-seeking family, whatever the ministry, doing missions makes our church stronger. May it be so.
Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. And the next verse reads, Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you. The good that this proverb speaks of is wholeness, welfare. It's a good where needs are met and peace is present. It's a good which is concrete, not abstract. A good you can wrap your arms around or feel as a meal settles in your stomach. It's our duty to give of this good urgently, now, as we have the power to do so. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now. What comes to mind when you think of mission? Maybe some of you picture a spy jumping over laser beams or a 12-minute car chase that somehow misses all the pedestrians. Maybe some of you just think of Daniel Craig. I don't know. For some of you, when you hear mission, Lottie Moon in China may come to mind or Mother Teresa in Calcutta caring for the dying. Some of us recall moments in Cuba or Guatemala we all probably think of Sneaky Dan. What concerns me is that for some Christians, mission is more akin to a spy movie than it is caring for neighbors and friends. These folks might call themselves crusaders or soldiers for Jesus. They're strategists. They're zealous. They're pragmatic and efficient. They're selling fire insurance and handing out golden tickets to an ethereal afterlife. Their work towards the Great Commission, in fact, earns a commission of status and power and self-confidence for every soul they win. They take their work seriously because their standing with God depends on it. We might think of this group of missionaries as super-Christians, to copy Paul's distinction in his Corinthian correspondence between apostles and super-apostles, which are in fact opposite to one another. I don't think these super-Christians are on mission with special gadgets or having car chases, probably, though depending on the context and traffic, it may be so. I certainly don't think that they have malicious motives or villainous intent. But if we image mission from a super-Christian perspective, then mission is more like a tactical operation with a strategic plan than it is participation in the work of God to redeem and restore all things. Mission, mission for super-Christians means being the most faithful, the most passionate, the most confident, and ironically, the most self-sufficient and independent. These folks stand at the center of things, and so their own perspective is the lens by which they discern truth. Mission work for super-Christians and super-missionaries often turns into something neo-colonial, not working towards the restoration of people in this world, in Jesus' name, but instead proselytizing others to your own cultural Christianity. It sometimes happens that these folks who I call super-Christians are really sharing their own flavor of Americanism 
as much as their faith in and love for the person, Jesus. Focusing on the afterlife and neglecting this life. Let me quickly pause to say of super-Christians and of super-missionaries that it takes one to know one. I'm a mostly former super-Christian, and all of us in any Christian camp or theological school or denomination, all of us to some degree struggle between being super-Christians and simply Christian, between being individuals working for ourselves in God's name and being people caught up in the work of God for the whole world, between thinking we're at the center and recognizing that we're on the periphery. It might seem odd to you to have a proverb about justice on this day that we talk about mission, but this is very missional. The love of God is expressed in justice. God's life with people is not something for a far-off future. God is with us here and now. Justice is God's love made tangible. Helping souls find wholeness in God must include their bodies having bread, their neighborhoods having peace, their planet having clean air and clean water, because all of these are interconnected. And Christ, the Christ who breathed the cosmos, has come to restore all. We go on mission because justice and wholeness are not present in all places and for all people. Not even close. In Luke 4, Jesus announces his mission in the words of the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of mission, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' work, his gospel work, is for the world and all who are in it now, today. How can people trust God with the future if the goodness of God isn't felt in the land of the living? The good news is not just something we mentally accept, it's something we experience with all of our being. That our proverb discusses dignity and justice, corrects super-Christianity, which tries to scoop up hearts and souls and leave the rest of the world behind. The proverb also corrects our mindset that everything is on our shoulders, that God's mission is fully our mission. And there's a paradox of faith here. The work to restore the world and participate in God's mission is our work as co-workers with God. But it's never really ours. It's like the theological equivalent of term life insurance instead of whole life insurance or a timeshare but it's not obnoxious and it's not stressful it's wonderful it's it's like being a grandparent 
You take care of God's mission and you love it and enjoy it and put your back into it. But when things go wrong or you get tired or you don't know what to do, you can always call the parent. Part of the good news of mission is that to be a person is to not be God. To not carry everything on our shoulders. To not take ourselves too seriously. To not be the source for truth. The simple Christian doesn't go on mission. She realizes she's always caught up in the mission. The simple Christian works to express God's goodness in tangible, present realities, but recognizes that he can't change anyone's life by his own power, not even his own. The simple Christian knows they participate in God's mission with every interaction, every thought, in every place, and on every day, or not. And when we're simply Christian, as opposed to super-Christian, we don't have to win converts to prove our worth or to prove that God is good. We don't have to restore all things by ourselves. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be God. Instead, we get to trust and do little things with great love and big things with the sober mindset that we are still small. Instead of being super Christian, we're asked to be simply Christian, simply neighborly, simply sacrificial, simply brave, simply joyful, simply human and as we live a simple Christian life the world becomes more well and not by our power or to our praise I'll close rather abruptly with this the one thing the good thing that super Christians have that I often lack is urgency People need this church. I needed a church like this. People need justice. People need a place to grow and become more of themselves than they are. God doesn't need me to restore the world and reveal God's self in the world. But I wonder what the alternative is. I wonder... If I'm not saying yes to the simple way of God with passion and joining Jesus in his mission of justice, am I complicit in injustice? If I'm not running after peace, am I complicit in violence? If I'm not striving for love, am I complicit in hate? God's mission is bigger and more beautiful and more gracious and more present than I ever would have imagined. But it's no less urgent for me to say yes. It's no less urgent for me to share the good news. And really, the good news as I know it now is some news I'm much more excited to share. Even though that takes my whole life and can't be pitched in an elevator or shouted from a sidewalk. When Jesus says, come and follow me, it's a summons. It's not to be taken lightly, even though it's free. Because the good news is much bigger than we thought. And there is more grace for everyone to feel and hold 
and taste and see. And somehow God shares that work with you and with me. Thanks be to God.